0: You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Sarah Fortune, the John Laporte-Given Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases and Chair of the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, May 21st.
1: I was just going to start by introducing myself. Um, so I'm an immunologist, immunologist by training. And, um, I wanted to um, just, I know my goal here is not to speak for very long, just extemporaneously, but I wanted to acknowledge what an incredible 10 days it's been in COVID vaccine development and um, flag for you some of the interesting um, uh, trends that are emerging from what I consider to be the four major vaccine stories of the last few weeks. And those are um, the Oxford uh, chimpanzee adenovirus vectored vaccine, the Sinovax heat-killed vaccine, um, the Moderna vaccine, and then very recently, like as of yesterday, a DNA vaccine, data from a DNA vaccine from Dan Baruch's lab. Um, and I, of those, I would say, um, as I look at the data as presented, the two strongest data packages thus far are from the Sinovac vaccine and Dan Berg's DNA vaccine. Um, and it's very um, both heartening, but there are some cautious notes in those uh, data. So um, both of those vaccines did a good job in protecting against um, disease. So they put pre- in these were both in monkey studies, so they protected non-human primates. Um, uh, against disease uh, where their disease metrics were either frank clinical disease or um, virus in the lungs that they took as a quantitative measure of disease. Um, but very interestingly, their vac- um, neither of these vaccines was nearly as protective against um, prote- in protecting against um, carriage in the nose or the throat which I think you might think of as a metric for um, how well that vaccine might protect against transmission. Um, And as we think about vaccines rolling forward, um, it's a common uh, paradigm in vaccines to have this, um, that that some vaccines are gonna protect against disease but not protect against transmission. And when we think about what we're going to expect a vaccine to do in the COVID epidemic and specifically providing herd immunity in a population level, um, I think it's a little bit sobering to see that we may, while we may get protection against disease and so we'll be able to protect people from getting sick, we may not get nearly as effective protection um, against transmission, which means that to protect the population, we're going to have to be um, vaccinating many, many more people, um, uh, because we can't rely on sort of getting to a lot of people and then um, having the epidemic die out through herd effects. So, that was going to be my opening salvo, um, but I am happy to ask questions or answer questions uh, about anything uh, you'd like to talk about.
0: Right. Uh, looks like we've got a first question.
1: Hi, um, uh,
0: thanks very much for uh, doing this. Um, I have a question. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, the correlates of protection or correlates of immunity and sort of what those are, how immunologists determine um, what they are for a specific pathogen, and then sort of why it's important to establish what they are, or or maybe also why it's not super urgent in the grand scheme of things.
1: No, it is so urgent, and I love that question. It's so dear to my heart. Okay, so. basically, uh, if you would like to understand uh, protective immunity or immunity generated by a vaccine, right? Um, How are you going to do that? So uh, the most definitive way is to give that vaccine to a whole lot of people, let them get naturally exposed and track disease outcomes uh, as a and then measure the protective efficacy of the vaccine against disease. So the problem with that, of course, is it takes a long time and you have to wait for disease outcomes. uh, And um, those uh, are clinically, can clinically uh, take quite a while to manifest. So it's not a very efficient and it is a very expensive way to test uh, vaccines. And so what you would like is have some blood measure of, what, of how well you're doing um, that serves as a correlate of that protective efficacy or immunity, um, which sounds like it's simple, but it is much more complicated than you'd think. Um, one of the nice things about this, actually there were two studies from Dan Baruch's lab uh, at the BIDMC uh, that were published yesterday Um, He did the best work that I have seen thus far in trying to look for correlative immunity because he, uh, in one of these studies, they took non-human primates, infected them with COVID, let them go their natural course, and then reinfected them, so looked for who was protected, and then looked for blood markers uh, and really antibody markers of uh, that correlative uh, protection, uh, protection against disease, um, and uh, in vaccine world, like a common correlate is the ability to take care those antibodies and put them in a tissue culture dish and squirt in vaccine and see how well that those antibodies prevent the vaccine from infecting those cells. That's called neutralizing antibodies, uh, like a neutralizing antibody titer. Um, And so that would be what's commonly used. Um, It turned out to be a little more complicated than that. Antibodies come in different flavors. And it seemed like if you looked at the flavor of antibody, you could get a more robust correlate. But the reason people are doing that is to try to improve um, the rapidity with which we can understand vaccine efficacy. And similarly, to try to understand when we look at population surveillance studies and see antibodies, whether that really means that people are protected or whether that just means they saw the virus generated antibodies, but those antibodies aren't gonna help them in the future. Does, it, does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, I guess like the definition of, or like what you're looking for in terms of establishing what the
1: correlates are, is it is it both um, a combination of the, the mix of antibodies and also the immune cells? And is it also like the quantity? It can, um, yeah, so it can be any of those. So like. A correlate does not actually have to be biologically related to the mechanism of protection. Um, in this case, people broadly, people like correlates that are seem like bi- biologically plausible, mediators, protection like antibodies. And then the titer of antibodies, like how much, the quantity matters, the flavor of antibody, and whether that antibody seems to have biologic protection in a dish, so neutralization. They like that. Um, The field, that doesn't prove that those antibodies are actually what's doing the job, Um, but those are the common uh, things to look at. But honestly, if you're like, you gave a vaccine and somebody's toe turned blue it had nothing to do with the direct mechanism, but it was a good predictor of whether that vaccine worked, that would also be a correlate of immunity.
0: Got it, thank you. Yeah. Great,
2: next question. Thanks so much for taking my question. Um, I, I found that point about the the kind of gap between, or the difference between protection against disease and preventing transmission. Um, kind of in a similar vein to the last question, what do you, what exactly do you look at to get a sense of whether a vaccine um, is is effective in, in terms of preventing transmission? And then secondly, um, in terms of why you highlighted those two particular data packages, Sinovac and, and uh, from Den Berg's lab, um, was that just related to the, the sort of amount of data produced or, or just specific things within relative to, to the Oxford vaccine or, or Moderna? Thank you.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so let me answer the first question about uh, trans- disease versus transmission. So actually in vaccine development, um, typically people focus on disease. Um, and then it's only um, kind of, it's typically with broader use that people begin to understand its effects on transmission because transmission is hard to me- measure experimentally or even in a small group of people. And so um, uh, it's hard to get a handle on. Um, but vaccines like the Acellular pertussis vaccine or the meningococcus vaccine, MenB. Um, They protect people against disease, but they do not protect against transmission. And actually a little vaccine fact here. Um, So we used to use a a whole cell pertussis vaccine that had some bad side effects or more commonly had some uh, side effects. And we switched to an acellular vaccine. So the whole cell vaccine did better against protecting against transmission. And then people think that the epidemic transmission of pertussis is now that switch in vaccines which protects against disease very well, but is not protection, protecting against carriage and transmission. So in COVID, people are trying to understand protective efficacy against transmission by swabbing um, the nose or the throat of these experimental animals. It is a poor proxy because we don't really understand whether uh, that, you know, there's a lot that goes on between a virus in the nose and whether that, that virus is viable to be transmitted. Um, but it's clear that there, the effects in the lung are more profound than the effects in the, uh, the upper airway um, from each of those studies. So the DNA vaccine, this, at least DNA vaccine studies, uh, study the sinovax vaccine and the ad vector vaccine study. And um, in terms of the comparative uh, strength of data packages, um, yeah, there, was a, there were more data in the DNA vaccine and Sinovac vaccine paper, um, and they more convincingly showed dose effects and um, actually had a little bit better effect in the lung than the ad vector vaccine. And the Moderna vaccine I mean, you've seen what I've seen, which is um, they gave the vaccine to 35 people. It was immunogenic, so they generated antibody responses. Their measure of efficacy that they reported was that the antibody the antibody titers were, um, so they measured antibody titers in 35 people and in eight people, a very small subset of people, they measured the more maybe biologically meaningful ability of those antibodies to prevent um, entry of that that virus into tissue culture cells. So that's neutralizing antibody. What they said was that the titers were as high or higher than in people who had had natural infection, uh, like the neutralizing um, antibody titers. The problem is the cohort studies of people who have had natural infections kind of range all over the place in terms of whether that's good or bad. Um, so there's was just a recent study that said that only three percent of people who have had natural infections have high titers of neutralizing antibodies. Um, 75% have medium titers and 20% have low titers. So to do better than that, it's not really clear how well you're doing. So While it was hopeful that Moderna was immunogenic, it was a very low bar bar for them to cross.
2: Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah.
1: Next
0: question.
3: Hi, thanks for doing the call. Um, I'm wondering. So we've got news uh, this morning uh, that uh, AstraZeneca, uh, uh, you know, with their deal with Oxford, uh, with the Oxford vaccine, they said they're going to have vaccines, like 300 million doses, ready by October. And I guess the question is, really, Uh, what is a realistic (laughs) timeline for any of these vaccines?
1: Well, normally it's. Sooner or it's much longer than October. Um, the world has the most experience with ad vectored vaccines, and the platforms, I, the manufacturing platforms at scale, I guess, are more robustly developed for those ad vectored vaccines. I do think you're right to be skeptical, though, because there are a lot of challenges with that scaling issue, and then lots of challenges with packaging. Uh, delivery, the cold chain—you know—that whole, the whole downstream manufacturing process is really complicated, and um, uh, I think uh, one should view those announcements with a degree of skepticism. Yeah, thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks very much. Um, This has been a fascinating discussion, so I have to apologize for changing the subject. But I wanted to ask you, um, the topic I wanted to talk about was about the reopening of states. And I'm wondering what you think about the um, different um, approaches that states are taking.
0: Does it matter that I can go get a haircut in Maine and I can have dinner in Rhode Island
1: and I I can't do either of those things in Massachusetts? I mean, what, what are the, What are the um, risks and hazards of having uh, such heterogeneity in in
2: states' response?
1: Um, Okay, I'm gonna give you two sides of the coin on that answer. The first is that obviously this is incredibly challenging for the states because there has not been coherent federal guidance. And so individual states relying on the guidance of sort of their individual collection of experts have to make the best decisions they can. And those decisions reflect both the opinions of their experts and, honestly, the other pressures, uh, economic, political pressures um, at play in the states. Um, And that's hard for those states. I mean, that's usually a level of uh, scientific and economic uh, uh, the integration of scientific and economic factors that um, that normally occur in the federal government not asking every state to make their own decision. Um, and some of those decisions are going to turn out to be fine and some of them are going to turn out to be um, real misses. They're definitely going to be mistakes. Uh, and you know, you can just understand that they're going to be mistakes that are policy mistakes. And I don't want to necessarily say we know what those are. So obviously like going out to dinner is different than having your haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, I don't think it is so obvious. I mean, except for things like nightclubs or bars or something um, uh, that are highly dependent on close congregative behavior. Um, but uh so some of those um, decisions will be policy mistakes and we're going to unfortunately we're going to discover that post hoc but we're also relying on individual people to then integrate these sort of guidelines about infection control in their own businesses and some people are going to do that better than others um, and some individuals in the community are going to abide by those better than others and that's sort of how well people do at a community level really is going to de- determine the success of uh, the reopening plans. And that puts a lot of burden on individual people. So is that inevitable, though? Um, or is there another way to do it? Well, clearly, other uh, countries have chosen different ways. So other countries have been much more prescriptive in... Uh, in how reopening happens much more prescriptive and um, have thus been able to have a little bit better control over um, the points of transmission. It's even in other countries, though, the success or failure of those measures does come down to individual behavior. And so where you see individuals Um, who make bad decisions, you know, those can really have, especially if they happen to, of course, be, you know, the super spreader always works that way, Um, Mm -hmm. then it really can have uh, profound consequences on local disease dynamics. Do we even know which aspects of the shutdown were most effective? Um, Which aspects? I think that viral transmission always depends on people coming together. So, any aspect of the shutdown that really limited people coming together, uh, I think you can, uh, from first principles, say that those were important aspects of limiting transmission. But if you're asking, did the effect, did the um, decisions about construction versus office workers versus restaurants. Were any of those more important than the other? No, I don't think we know that. It's a we are left with very blunt tools and then trying to understand from that very blunt perspective, how to make more fine grained decisions based on our understanding of how transmission occurs and what behavior looks like, but it's a very imprecise science.
4: Thank you. Next question.
3: Uh, hi, Dr. Fortune. If if uh, cases do go up and we need to um, shut down or restrict again, are there um, are there things that you think we've learned this time around that will allow us to do it better or more in a more targeted way?
1: Well, I wish I could. Ha- I had a resounding yes for you. <laughs> um, I think we have, okay. Um, There are resources that we have that are gonna allow us to do it better in a more targeted way. And that might be as good as lessons learned. So we clearly have vastly more testing capacity than we did when we had to shut down the first time. And by July, we're gonna have five to 10 times even more capacity at a state level anyway. Um, And so I think we understand that testing and testing around cases is important. And as we develop um, more and more testing capacity, what that's gonna allow us to do is not just test symptomatic individuals, but to test contacts of symptomatic individuals. And I think that our ability to do that will allow us to be smarter and then will allow us to understand where through our contact tracing will allow us to understand where transmission is occurring, and so that's old-fashioned infection control. Um, and uh, but old-fashioned, you know, boots on the ground epidemiology really help you understand where things are going wrong um, in a concrete way. So I think the the fact that we've developed this testing capacity and a contact tracing network will enable us. As we see more transmission, I think we should expect to see more transmission, but to enable us to sort of track that down and react to it and be adaptive in our responses moving forward.
3: And uh, I mean, you said uh, we should expect to see more transmission, which I guess I guess makes a lot of sense. Is, is there one one uh, metric that you would think? Um, or, or that you're looking at to see if we do get to a place where we we need to reverse course
1: well I think I, th- I don't think given where we are where we don't have um given the tools we have on hand I don't I think that the governor's metrics um and as uh, um are not unreasonable uh and so those would be sort of percent test positive of course that's that can fluctuate depending on how many tests you have available to deploy, but also your hospitalization rate um, and, and your ICU occupancy. Now, those are very, again, blunt, and they lag way behind what's actually happening. And so you know, to the extent that we can use our testing resources to um, get a handle on real time, uh, real-time infection uh, dynamics and then use serologic testing to do better population surveys um, I think that that will be important
2: very good thank you
1: yeah all right next question
3: Hi, thanks got a follow up I was wondering uh, as we're, while we're talking about uh, mobility and and uh, seeing more transmission um, you know because of people moving around more um, I, I'm wondering if we're actually able to see any difference in the rates of transmission from you know people changing behavior like wearing masks for one thing, maybe giving people a little bit more you know a little bit more space. Um, I saw the the new um, Imperial College model came out saying that they're basically doubling the number of deaths over a two month period because of increased mobility, but they don't take into account Things like mask wearing and uh, testing, tracing also. So I'm wondering, it is maybe premature to 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 say, but can can we see impacts of mask wearing and behavior change on transmission? You know, do we know that opening up uh, is going to cause the same level of infections as as we saw before? You know, before we locked down.
1: Yeah, I, that's a good question, um, uh, and I think. Um, you're absolutely right that we should not, ex- I mean, hopefully, we should not expect to see the same level of, um, uh, of transmission before we lock down because we do know, um, for example, from hospitals where um, the measures, so mask wearing, attention to hand, uh, surface hygiene um, and distance, Um, and uh, symptomatic screening, really, really, really did a great job at limiting within hospital transmission. So people still got, healthcare workers um, were still at high risk to get infected from their patients, especially in the ED and then the um, ICU. Um, But those measures did a really good job at preventing healthcare workers from infecting other healthcare workers or infecting Uh, other patients. So like that trend, which is sort of a a very contained example of uh, a population that's at high risk of transmitting among themselves. And so I think that, but it's only in those um, pretty defined circumstances that I think we should, we have evidence that we can limit transmission through these event, um, through these measures. Um, and it's just the, uh, you know the cautionary note is healthcare workers are, of course extremely motivated to observe all those safety measures very assiduously. And so we as a normal people in the community should also be highly motivated to observe those safety measures assiduously um, to maximize their efficacy. Thanks. Uh,
4: next question.: No hi. Good morning, thank you for this um, conference. Um, I would like to ask um, a, a retrospective question that I always ask to uh, experts like you. Actually, I know that uh, many many pharmaceutical companies which are uh, developing um, research on, on vaccine, they are building their uh, current research on the results uh, achieved um, while doing research for a vaccine against uh, the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. And, um, I would like to know if, um, if, um, if we, should, if, if we had the vaccine, uh, uh ready or tested, uh, on, on, humans against the, the SARS 2002, 2003, would we try to use it, um, against the novel coronavirus or at least, uh, speed up, uh, the vaccine research against novel coronavirus, uh, upgrading the, the, the former vaccine? It wouldn't make any difference actually.
2: Well, it would
1: make a difference and it did make a difference. So that vaccine research got um, pretty far along before people lost interest in SARS-CoV-1 and um, sort of let those vaccines uh, molder on the shelf. Um, But we learned a lot. So we learned um, actually about the complexity of the downstream process. So many of those vaccine efforts were, uh, had a a sort of interesting and concerning safety signal, so that um, we don't really have enough data um, out of our current vaccine efforts to, I think, make any confident statement that we're not going to see this time around. And the safety signal was that they, the vaccines actually um, sort of protected against viral in the lungs, so the virus's ability to infect the lung, but then it, they've recruited the wrong type of immune response in, in a subset of uh, uh, animals or, and this has actually been seen with uh, RSV vaccines in people. So like, it looks fine, it looks fine, but a subset of people got the wrong kind of immune response or re- immune response that looked a little bit more like allergy than viral protection. And then it made them really sick. Um, And in the case of RSV, actually vaccinated individuals did worse than unvaccinated individuals uh, just because of the numbers of people who would normally even get sick from RSV. So um, I think we learned a lot about what to look out for um, and how to do this better. and I think if we had taken it all the way through and had a licensed vaccine for SARS-CoV-1, we definitely would be trying it. Um, but it's not, that wasn't wasted effort.
4: So, so you're saying that uh, there, wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a lot of chance that uh, the SARS, that the, the vaccine against uh, sars uh, sars one would work? That's not what you said. There, there
1: wasn't, no, 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 there was a chance, but those vaccines had a safety problem. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so uh, a safety problem that we don't know if our vaccine is going to have yet. So, um, yes, it may be that we would have had a home run, but it, but even what what we uncovered in that effort is really helping shape our thinking about what what are important parameters to be measuring in vaccine development today.
4: Okay, thank you. You know.
1: And and I guess the other thing I should say is it's not as if you could use the vaccine necessarily to vaccinate for SARS-CoV-2 and and really get good cross-protection because um, your immune system is extremely exquisitely sensitive to very small differences in the, the viral antigen that it's using. And so your immune system can see the difference between a and B, or A and A prime, pretty well, and so I don't think we should think that we missed the chance to have a, a vaccine in hand that would work perfectly against SARS-CoV-2. Yes,
4: I was just wondering if uh, you can uh, basically update the the, the, the vaccine against coronavirus, beta coronavirus the same way uh, how, uh, the same way um, researchers or pharmaceutical companies upgrade uh, uh, the vaccine against. The different strains of of, of a seasonal flu. You know, they they change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, so it's an appealing idea. There's a little bit about the biology of the viruses that's a little different that makes me think that while you probably could get um, an immune response that would translate, the safety signals might be different and that it's not quite as easy as swapping out the antigens in the way that we do with the flu vaccine.
4: Okay, thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, all right, next question.
2: Uh, thank you very much. So um, something, a uh, kind of debate that, that pops up from time to time is on the mutation of the virus um, in one direction, yeah. you know, more virulent after that Los Alamos study. Now yeah. um, in Italy, um, in the other direction, that, that it may be weakening to the point where um, you may be able to change policy. On the other hand, you have obvious confounding factors like a less acute outbreak will make you see people with less symptoms. It may appear to be other, you know, something, maybe caused by something other than the virus. Just wondering yeah. what the usual time frame might be to, to see those kind of mutations and, and the type of evidence you'd like to see to, to be able to sort of confirm that, that that's actually the cause of, of any changing trend?
1: Um. Okay, I'm not a viral evolutionary biologist. And I guess I, um, while I read those papers with interest, and it's clear that um, there are different evolutionary trajectories for the different clades of this virus, um, I am wary of interpreting any one of those as evidence that we should be able to change policy because of exactly what you just said about the confounding effects. and the um, so what what you see what you sample what you and what you see or what you see is highly in, uh, impacted by, by what you sample, which can be conflated by all sorts of uh, uh, issues. And then um, what the trajectory of evolution is is also highly uh, dependent on the sort of both selective forces and bottlenecking in that population. And and so um, uh, I feel like they're very, they have the potential to be conflated, confounded by highly regional uh, effects that make me wary of over-interpreting them.
2: Great, Uh, thank you very much.
1: Yeah.
0: Next question. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I have a general question about the different uh, vaccine approaches that are being explored. Um, so of course, some of the most vaccine, um, one of, some of the most advanced vaccines um, are using, uh, you know, DNA, or these DNA and RNA-based vaccines, but the technology behind these, of course, is unproven. Um, you know, we don't have a licensed RNA or DNA vaccine yet. Um, so right. I just want to kind of get your general take on, you know, how likely is it that um, one of these genetic vaccines is is going to be, you know, the vaccine that we have in a year? Or do you think it's more likely that um, we'll have a vaccine that relies on a more established technology? Uh,
1: that is a good question. Um, so, you know, the most established way of generating a vaccine is to take a pathogen and kill it, right? Either kill it just heat kill it or take a pathogen and um, sort of attenuate it. Um, and the, Cino, the Sinovax vaccine, the, the Chinese vaccine paper, um, that's exactly what they did. So if you want established, that's, that is exactly what they did. And then the ad vector vaccine, the ad platforms um, are much more established and have been used in a variety of different uh, infections uh, in large scale population trials, um, uh, uh, As you may know, the nucleic acid vaccines are appealing because of scaling and um, uh, downstream manufacturing issues. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot that has to be shown, and there are um you're going to give a vaccine to a whole lot of healthy people. And so there are important safety parameters that have to be con- taken into consideration that I don't think we have a good sense for in the um, nucleic acid-based vaccines. And so I would expect that we're gonna have multiple vaccines with different efficacy profiles and different safety envelopes. Um, the, you know, And that different, honestly, that different, populations might have access to different vaccines, depending on the weird uh, g- political, the nationalization of vaccine development. Um, and that um, I expect that probably a nucleic acid vaccine might be a part of that whole portfolio. And I don't know how it's gonna stack up against the more traditional, uh, more established vaccine platforms.
0: Do you have to follow up? Um, no, I think um, uh, actually I, I do. Uh, I have a question about the the manufacturing aspect, and that has been um, you know one thing that um, um, you know Moderna and, and um, pursuing the nucleic acid vaccines uh, have you know said that these are much. Um, they're they're able to be scaled up much more quickly because the um, you know the the starting materials uh, can be can be produced um, fairly quickly. But I mean, uh, we I guess we don't have there's not really a track record of of these vaccines being produced in large quantities and for I guess other uh, manufacturing facilities that are producing different kinds of vaccines. I mean, how um, how easily would you know another facility be able to kind of quickly switch over and produce this? I guess I'm just I'm, I'm just curious about um, you know those claims uh, of you know how easy is this really able to to be manufactured?
1: Well, I think what they're saying is it's not a biologic. So if you make an ad vector vaccine, or if you make a you cook COVID and make it a vaccine that's a biologic product right you actually have cells and culture uh, that you're having to expand and then grow that virus Um, and um, as a biologic there's a lot that can go wrong in the biologic process namely contamination like like if you just think about how the scale of what on which you'd have to do some of those um, biologic manufacturing processes adhering to the standards the manufacturing standards for contamination uh, and purity, and that's a hard process. And you can think of those nucleic acid vaccines almost more like chemicals. You synthesize them, yeah, they're not, you're not growing them. Um, and so there is an inherent uh, layer of simplicity or, but you're absolutely right. Um, In part we say that because we haven't tried to manufacture and deliver one of these things, you know, at the scale of uh, a billion doses. So it is possible that in the scaling of that, we will discover problems in either the supply or delivery chain, supply, manufacturing or delivery chains that really have not uh, been evident before.
0: Yeah, thank you, that was really helpful. Yeah. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for for doing this. Do you have a sense of how many people worldwide would have to be vaccinated in the U.S. or worldwide would have to be vaccinated to provide herd immunity to provide enough protection?
1: Um, so actually, that comes back to this where the point where we started was as whether this vaccine is going to just protect against disease or it's going to protect against transmission, and so a, pr- a vaccine that protects against transmission actually, um, we are not going to have to deliver as many doses as a vaccine that protects against disease. Basically, a vaccine that protects against disease means if you want to be protected, you you have to get the vaccine, and anybody who doesn't get the vaccine is still at risk. And so it's only by mitigating transmission that we're going to be able to achieve a, a meaningful epidemiologic, or, like a profound epi- improvement on the epidemiology of the epidemic. Uh, and because we don't really know yet um, if these vaccines are going to protect against transmission or to the extent to which they're gonna protect against transmission, it's hard to predict, except to say that the, the data that's emerging suggests that there's, there is a differential and there's greater protection against disease than against at least carriage in the nasopharynx, which might be a proxy for transmission.
0: Do you have a follow up? Sorry, what what would one have to look at or what? Yes, thanks. What what would we have to look at or what, what are the things that would tell us one way or the other in looking at this data?
1: Well, it's hard. Transmission is really hard to measure. So what people are looking at is whether in these animal studies where they infect the monkeys after vaccination, they're looking at the lungs to see disease. Like did that monkey get COVID pneumonia and how much virus set up shop in the lung? But they're also looking at vi- viral carriage in the nose and throat, which they're taking as a proxy for transmissible virus. And these, the vaccines that have the most, well, both, actually all three, the DNA vaccine, the Sinovax, and the advector vaccine, they do better against disease, so better in the lung than they do against viral carriage in the nose and throat recognizing that viral keratin in the nose and throat is just sort of one step towards transmission and we don't really 100% know if that's going to be the correlate of trans effect on transmission that's going to be most meaningful.
0: And of course we don't know how long immunity would last either by infection that's or vaccination, right? I mean none, none of this can tell us exactly
1: That is exactly true. Now I do think that um, you're absolutely right. And so when people have looked at immunity to other coronaviruses uh, in settings of other vaccines, you know, it's not like lifelong immunity. It's a couple of years. Um, And so um, in experimental settings uh, uh, so um, I don't I think your point is well taken that the durability of immunity is also important. And that is probably going to be a feature of the vaccine platform itself. So that um, some vaccines are gonna generate more durable immunity than others. And probably all of those vaccines are not gonna do as well as natural infection. I mean, that's the sort of common uh, paradigm in uh, infectious diseases.
0: Next question.
2: Hi, thank you uh Sarah. My question is about the uh furin cleavage site that this version of SARS has. And I wondered whether mm-hmm. that has an impact on vaccine development in any way.
1: Uh, um um I do not think so. It's, um so you're basically asking mm, that's a hmm? So, you know, these vaccines are taking different approaches. Like Dan Burke's vaccine, it has a, he has six vaccine constructs mm-hmm. um, that have different uh, bits of the va- virus in it, and um, uh, I do not think that there is a way that the, that site is actually changing the immunogenicity of the spike protein or the receptor binding protein. But if you really cared about that, I would have to look more precisely. Okay.
2: Okay. And I had one other question. Uh, Yeah. I heard that people who were infected with the first SARS virus, uh, many of them are still carrying antibodies 18 years later. Do we have any sense of whether those antibodies might be neutralizing?
1: uh, That is a great question. So that is a... Okay, so you know what that is? That is a evidence of how like primary infection is just an incredible immunogen. Um, uh, uh, I have not, and what you'd ask is kind of, are those antibodies still neutralizing against um, the original SARS-CoV-1? And I have not seen that done. um, I think the expectation would be that it would look like their original antibody response. So probably in most people, they had a degree of neutralization. Some people not, and some people were great. Um, but, uh, but what it really highlights is um, if you have primary infection, wow, it's just like your body has seen that in a different way than a vaccine. And it really, really has this profound immunologic memory of that infection.
2: Thank you.
0: Next question.
2: Uh, thank you very much. Um, last one, I promise. Um, so it, it, it's just the the one slice of human safety data we have, is that that pretty skeletal release from Moderna. But I just wanted to hear what, what your reaction was. Obviously, a really small number of patients, but in the high dose, which they're not moving forward with, um, you know, three transient grade three um, like flu-like symptoms. Is that yeah. in the realm even given the sample size of what we might expect to see going forward or is that any reason for concern?
1: Um, uh, okay, so when they talk about safety in this teeny phase one study, right, basically they're talking about um, uh, really... Profound tolerability effect, uh, tolerability um, uh, issues. So, um, it, so in the phase one study, they're looking for tolerability, but they're also doing dose finding, right? And so, um, it is not uncommon to have tolerability issues at higher level doses. That happens all the time in both vaccines and um, uh, and drugs. And then you use that as a way to um, march your dose back. So that's sort of acute tolerability. That is not quite the same thing as the safety issues that get most vaccines into trouble. Um, most Most vaccines that have gotten into trouble, they find a dose that's tolerable, right? And then they give it in the population. But in the population level, you know, we're all different. And some of us generate, well, as you, we're all different, as you know, because most people um, get COVID and they're fine and some people get sick. So at a population level, what we need to do is make the most people who are going to be fine, make sure they don't then get sick. And the people who are going to get sick either protect them or make sure we don't make them sicker, right? And it's that level of um, untoward uh, interaction between the individual's immunity and what happens at challenge that gets a lot of vaccines into trouble. And the Moderna uh, trial did not come anywhere close to addressing that more complicated safety question. Really, it was just like, did we poison you or not?
2: Oh, perfect. Thank you. That's a good way of putting it. I, I appreciate
1: it. Yeah.
0: Next question, and I I think this might
4: be our last one. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the chance uh, to ask another question. I, I don't know if, if you mentioned also the, 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 the progress made by the company Novavax. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I, I talked to a Novavax um, uh, advisor and basically they said that their company has developed um, some years ago in the, in the wake of the SAS uh, one uh, outbreak. break. A, a vaccine or antibody, which actually targets the, the, the common parts, the common portion to, to beta coronaviruses. So basically their vaccine can target and detect oh, yeah. and activate. Is it, is it possible uh, or it's, it's plausible? Or, um,
1: it is possible. I have I would, honestly, I'd have to look at the Novavax vaccine um, data a little more carefully. I don't have it at the top of my head to assess the validity of that you know, um, you asked about flu earlier, and um, what Novavax is talking about in that has been the holy grail of flu. Like, can you target something common to every flu strain so that you don't have to get a new flu vaccine every year when it changes up its its surface parts, right? Um, and um, biologically, that's really hard because the, the bits of the virus that um, it uses to Um, invade are often the ones that are most uh, impressive in terms of the kinds of uh, protective immunity if you target them and if you target some little bit of the virus that it doesn't really care about but is shared across all viruses you get an immune response but it doesn't do much and so that's called a universal flu vaccine. I know a lot about it in flu and I don't know enough about it in coronavirus to know whether that's plausible or not, but it is a biologically, it's a holy grail, but it's been a biologically really hard problem. Mm
4: -hmm. Okay, thanks again.
1: Yeah.
0: Looks like that's our last question for today. Dr. do you have any final words before we end the call?
1: No, thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: This concludes the May 21st press conference.